Hello and welcome along to the podcast Sport and Life. It is uh, Friday morning, recording this in sunny Cheltenham in the west of England. Thank you for tuning in, listening to the podcast, downloading it, listening wherever you are, whatever platform. Thank you to the sponsors as ever, Bang Olufsen of Cheltenham and Serene AV, who are specialists in some of the finest home entertainment brands, providing solutions based around high quality customer service and installations. Check out Bang Olufsen of Cheltenham's website for numbers for Jason Briggs and his team. Their store in uh, the heart of Montpellier in the courtyard, but I'm sure they can travel, come to you. Uh, for any uh, bespoke solutions, any plans, particularly doesn't have to be Bang Olufsen equipment. They can, uh, through their sister company, Serene AV, can detail you uh, the best on offer for your budget. Uh, so contact Jason and his team. Thank you to Cytoplan, C-Y-T-O-P-L-A-N. Cytoplan Supplements, we've been using them as a family for 20 years. And again, <laughs> have to say it's not a scientific experiment because we don't have a control group of a uh, family of similar characteristics and, and lifestyles uh, who could compare but we uh, very much believe in them my father has worked as a consultant my father being a, a GP and a nutritionist here in the UK and he has uh, advised on the formulation of, of some of them and in, including things like Immunovite which is to optimize immunity which we're all cognizant of at the moment there is a kids Immunovite as well my daughter's back at school five-year-old and we're aware that we're trying to stave off the coughs and colds just because I think if we can keep off the symptoms, it, it it's then precludes us from a real logistical nightmare with my work as a broadcaster still going into the studio for her, having to try and source a test at the moment. It's not always that easy and then having to wait for test results, so on and so forth. So for us, just trying to optimize our immunity and with that that specter, I suppose, of COVID-19 in the background as well with, with grandparents and, and so on and so forth in mind, want to try and, uh, I guess, stop it in its tracks and not carry it around if we were to be exposed to it. Uh, so cytoplan.co.uk and you can get a 10% discount with my code DRAPER10, D-R-A-P-E-R-1-0. I hope you're having a, a good Friday. I hope the anxiety and the sort of uncertainty of the current situation is easing, whether it's health concerns that you have primarily or whether anxiety over employment and the sort of broader philosophical questions and just feeling, I suppose, uh, a loss of liberty at the moment because we are being regulated and have been for, for six months with with positive intent on behalf of the government. But I think it is a struggle. And I know the suicide rates are up and mental health challenges are being well documented. So I do hope you're well. I thank you. Thank you for listening to the podcast. This is with Ryan Lamb, a guy who's uh, retired from rugby, a distinguished career, playing career for a decade and a half, really. I think from sort of 2004 to 2019, he finished the last week, play, uh, last uh, last spring playing for the Finnethley Scarlets in Wales. We played in France as well, but as a Gloucester boy, back in Cheltenham, back in the area now, not far from Gloucester. His parents are, are close by, and he's uh, now co uh, coaching at Hartbury College in Gloucestershire, at rugby in the, in the second tier of, of English professional rugby, or semi-professional, I believe, at, at that club. We'll talk about that with Ryan, and um, yeah, the challenges facing rugby as well at this time. So he's uh, very candid and uh, a good guy. Let's uh, hear from former professional rugby player, now coach, Ryan Lamb. Ryan, how you doing? Yeah, I'm well, Ed. How are you? How's better? Good, good. Got you there, mate. Got you there. Um, uh, yeah, the wonders of modern technology. I appreciate you downloading the app and, and doing all this uh, tomfoolery. Um, no problem, mate. No problem. I just shut the window actually because it might be better for the might be better for the noise. Do you want me to do that quickly? Yeah, sure. Right, two seconds. Well, you... <laughs> Depends what you got out there. <laughs> good man. That should be better. Good, good. How's life? You've got kids at home, you said. Is that right? 
Yeah, I've got a couple of kids, um, one that doesn't sleep too well, so it's, uh, it's a bit of a difficult time at the moment, but he's uh, hopefully going through it. Yeah. How, old, how old is he? Uh, William's three and Layla's my younger daughter's eight. Oh, okay. Yeah, well, our daughter's five, and I mean, I'm sure you, you've probably been through it, but she's she's very much, I don't know whether it's the time at the moment, but she's up in the night and she's getting into our bed and she's, I think it's quite a sort of unsettling time for them as well. They're sort of picking up lots of things, aren't they, subconsciously? Yeah, definitely. I think um, it just maybe a bit of anxiety rolling over, but yeah, it is a weird time, for, especially for the children. Mm. Um, so yeah, I mean, you've got to, you've got to try and be as understandable as you can, but when it's three in the morning, you know, you get a bit frustrated. <laughs> <laughs> I know. <laughs> I know. We give up. One of, one of us goes into her bed. <laughs> we sort of yeah, give exactly. up and go the other way. Yeah, yeah. Because you think, like, once you've been up in the middle of the night arguing, you just think, actually, let's just get some sleep. It's just tricky. Yeah. Um, how, how are you, mate? What are you up to? Because you were at the Ospreys last year, weren't you? you are you still playing? Are you coaching? What, what's going oh, was on? Oh, I was at Finetley last year. Finetley, um, sorry. Yeah, Scarlet's, yeah. yeah. And then um, I mean, I retired from playing. Um, and obviously, it was a very difficult time in rugby. I, I retired in March. My contract actually finished in March. Then lockdown, oh, wow. end of February, and then lockdown happened in March. So I mean, it was uh, obviously quite a difficult time in terms of uh, trying to get a job back into rugby. But I, I had a I had a coffee shop. I was a part owner of a coffee shop, and I did a bit of that. But obviously, that got shut down. Mm. Um, yeah, so it was a bit of a difficult time. But luckily enough, I've I've got back on the on the ladder. And, um, at Hartbury College now, doing the championship side, uh, the attack and backs coach for Hartbury College. Oh, fantastic! Um, yeah, we're in the championship, so it, it's a uh, it's a great opportunity to transition from uh, playing into coaching. Um, obviously, you've got a lot of teams and a, a lot of uh, from different age groups there, so it's uh, it's great for experience. But my main uh, my main job is the championship side, so it's uh, it's uh, quite an exciting time for the transition. Yes, yeah, people who don't know that's a, that's a second level of rugby. Is it full time at Hartbury? Are they pros? Or are they part time? Yeah, I mean the the lads are semi professional. Look, I mean we train on Tuesdays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. Um, a lot of the lads still go to the uni as well, so it's um it's a bit part time. But for the coaches, we're we're in mainly every day. Yeah. Um. So yeah, it's a it's a full time role for myself. So it's it's a, it's exciting. It's it's a bit different being in in the office. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and not really uh, looking at your game as much, trying to look at everyone else's. So yeah, it's a tra- it's a it's a bit of a transition, but it's uh, it's exciting. And as I said, it's, I'm still quite lucky to be involved in the game. Yeah, good for you. What are the main differences then? Is it just the hours are longer, I guess, as well? Are they than than, than playing? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean the uh, the hours are a little bit longer. I mean you got to do a lot of planning for the sessions and um and um, targets you want to get out of the sessions. So it's uh yeah it's. It's a bit more, um, bit more thinking to it. I mean, you're not really as a player. You kind of just look after y- your own corner a little bit and make sure you're prepared mentally and knowing your job in the game that the coach kind of presents to. So I mean, but once you're, uh, once you make that, uh, make that jump over to the other side, I mean, you've got a lot of responsibility for a lot more things. Um, mm. I mean, you're trying to, you're trying to work out every aspect of, especially the attack and backs play for my job. So it's, um, yeah, it is very different, but. It is. Uh, it's very exciting as well. Oh, good, good. I'm glad you. I'm glad you're enjoying it. Congratulations on that. Because as you say, it's a it's a really difficult time at the moment. Were you were you sort of made up in your mind before the pandemic that you wanted to retire, or, or did that push you into it because of the, I suppose the uncertainty and, and clubs unwilling to sign players at that point? Well, I was in uh, in France for a, for a few years with La Rochelle, mm. um, and and to be honest, when I finished that contract, that's pretty much what I wanted. I, I kind of set my mind to retiring then. Um, but Reese Patchell got injured in the World Cup. Um, he plays for Tlethley mm. and uh, Tlethley Scarlets. And I, I know uh, a couple of the coaches there who I've previously worked with. And 
I think they just wanted a bit more of experience around ten. They got a couple of really good young guys coming through, um, and they wanted someone with a bit of an older head, um, and that's what I was classed at now. So that's weird, though, isn't it? Because you're only what you're 33 then, you're 34 now. It's strange, isn't it, in sport that the kind of um, the aging process is so much quicker than real life, where you probably still be considered oh, okay. a young man. There's always someone coming up very quickly to take your place then in in that game. So I mean, it was. Um, I mean, it was great to go work there. Actually, um, a lot of the senior players were away. Yeah. Uh, after the World Cup, so to go up there, and that's what kind of fueled my uh, fueled my passion a bit for coaching because I had a lot of responsibility with uh, the younger players there in the academy. Mm. Um, and then to kind of work work with the players and their kind of their drive and their ambition, it was uh, it was it was kind of fed off uh, fed back to me a little bit, and it was uh, yeah, it was, it was quite good to feed off their energy and and that kind of. Um, and then I got told from a few coaches that would I, have I thought about going into coaching, etc. And mm. I, I didn't really think of it, to be quite honest. But I've got a few levels under my belt that I prepared earlier in my career. So it was, it was, um, yeah, it was, it was something that I kind of, if there was an opportunity to do, which I didn't think there, there might not be. But I mean, locally as well, Hartbury College is quite close to me. I mean, being from Gloucester and uh, living in Cheltenham now. So it was, uh, it's, yeah, I've definitely landed on my feet with this opportunity. And it's something I want to take with both hands. Really. Yeah, good for you. I hope it goes, um, I hope it goes really well. It's interesting that you said that they were sort of asking whether you wanted to get into coaching. Do you feel that having been a fly half, there's more of a natural transition because you kind of, you're looking at how the game uh, sort of runs and, and you're sort of thinking, aren't you, in that in that position in terms of orchestrating things? Do you think there's a crossover between fly halves and and coaching? Um, yeah, that, I think yeah, definitely. It's a, it's a massive decision making role in, in the game. So, I mean, it, it, even when you're preparing as a player throughout the week, you uh, you're always talking and, and conversing with the coaches and trying to find out different tactics, doing a lot of analysis yourself. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. So it's um yeah it is it is quite a seamless transition in that way but I think it's just the what you're gonna have to get your head around is how you present your ideas to the players mm. um, trying to make it as simple as possible because I think a lot a lot of few environments I've been in I think uh, the message gets overcomplicated and especially if you're in your professional environment in in a Premiership where you might have eight to ten different nationalities in in a room mm. um, and some of that English being their third language and and you're you're trying to use uh, long, complicated words with lots, <laughs> with lots, of, with lots of coaches try to, and they uh, they try to get a few buzzwords out. So I think yeah, the message can get lost a little bit. So I mean, it's just I think being a coach is trying to get your ideas across um, in the most simplistic way um, that, the, that the boys can perform on the field and, and try and replicate that in training. So it's um. Yeah, it's a, it's, it's a bit of a thought process behind it, but it's, a, it's definitely one I'm enjoying. Yeah, I suppose it's funny, isn't it? Because you think we think as, as people who never made it in professional sport that actually at that elite level, it must be complicated and tactical and technical. But actually, I suppose in those environments, particularly on match day, it just needs to be simple, clear messages, doesn't it? Because effectively, these guys will, will know a lot of the, the more detailed stuff. Uh, I just think in, in the environments I've been in, when a coach is kind of, especially going into sessions, if you go into sessions and you have, a two or three targets that you want to get out of that session or and the boys um, understand the targets that you're trying to get out of. I mean, I think you get a lot more buy-in mm. um, and the boys understand what they're trying to work to. And, and that's, the, and that's the, the message I'm trying to get across. And, and uh, I mean, I've had some decent feedback so far. I mean, obviously it's early days, um, but I've got the lads at, lads at the college, they're very keen and they're very... Um, 
very interesting. They've got a lot of ambition and want to play at a higher level. So I think it's it's a lot easier uh, uh, coming into this environment to be able to get that message across. And do, do you com- command respect, I guess, having played for Gloucester and England Saxons, that you've been where they, they want to go? And they're younger, I suppose. There's an age gap between you, isn't there? It's not like they're, they're pros who are of a similar age to you. Yeah, exactly. I mean... Um, I mean, they're a lot bigger than me as well, so it's not <laughs> sure I demand the respect in, uh, in terms of uh, uh, what. Yeah, I mean, it's. it's um, I mean, I've come in. I didn't want to try and push, but it's quite hard because obviously they they watched me play from when they were younger, and mm. and uh, it, I think yeah, you do kind of get that respect, but I think you can lose that very quickly if uh, if you go in and and uh, the messages get misconstrued or the boys don't understand and they say, "Oh, he's a good player," but now you're a coach and. Uh, the boys want to know that they can progress and understand what you're trying to get out of them. So it's uh, yeah, it's it's an interesting time, um, and it's, it's definitely an opportunity I want to take with both hands. Mm. And uh, so you got you got to put the work in. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned the size thing because you're you're what five nine, Ryan, and and what, thirteen stone. I think you're listed as something like that. What was it like being in professional rugby? Because we just associate your era with big bruises, don't we? And, and people getting on the weights and getting getting stacked and stuff like that. Was it? We, did you feel that you were going against the grain when you were younger or did you feel that it was always just about the talent, particularly at the fly half position? I, I think it's mainly from the area that you're from, maybe. I think Gloucester wasn't... Um, when, when we were coming through the ranks, no one really kind of put a big emphasis on conditioning, especially through the academy. and It was all about decision-making skills and, mm. and upskilling yourself in the core skills with the kicking, passing, decision-making, etc. So it was... Um, yeah, so I didn't really have a big emphasis until really I got to about nineteen twenty because I didn't really have a pre-season. I used to go away a lot with England youth teams and then the England Saxons. And then, uh, and then Dean Ryan kind of said, listen, I think I played Guinness Premiership final and I got run over about six times by <laughs> Tuolangi. <laughs> Manu Tuolangi, yeah. yeah. Wow. His brother, Alex. Oh, Alex, sorry. Manu yeah. later on. Yeah. So he was like a conveyor belt of, uh, of Tuolangi's one in <laughs> But it was, yeah, it was, I think it was a bit of an eye-opener. It's like, listen, we've got to put a bit more weight on you. I think I was, when I was playing um, pretty much two or three years into my career, I was playing around 86 to 88 kilos. That was my, mm. my fighting weight, as they say. And uh, and then, but when I did start, I was all, I think I was 74 kilos in that game. And I mean, looking back that, that's, that's, like a, that's like a rat. I don't think you could <laughs> survive in there. I don't think you could survive in the championship. There, there was that transition, wasn't there? I don't know if it's changed and evolved again, but I did a bit of pitch side rugby reporting for um, for Sky when they had the rights for the premiership. And it was, yeah. there was a, there was a period where it was became like trying to run into people was the objective rather than running for holes, which seemed to be when I was a kid, that was the, the objective was trying to like slither through gaps, but it became, it became like punch ball, didn't it? Oh yeah, it was more of um, a nutritional win the game line. I mean, that's what I remember having a year or two where it was just literally attack and defence. You have to win the game line, and there wasn't really too much tactics on how to do that or manipulate defence. It was it was like a man test to who's going to win that <laughs> uh, who's going to win that game line. And so obviously my uh, my forte wasn't carrying the ball too much. So it was um, yeah, it was an interesting time. But I think it is as you said, it's evolved a little bit now. Defence is so good. So organised now, and um, and everyone's relatively the same size. They're all they're all big guys, really athletic guys. So it's a bit more. I think they're trying to streamline a few. A few if you look at the backs now, there's mm. a lot more, maybe quicker, a lot more taller ranger players. Um, but I remember coming through when there was just they used to put a massive guy at twelve and thirteen and a huge winger. Yeah. And they would just try and keep coming down each channel, and it was just a physical test. Yeah, I suppose Mike Tindall was always a trailblazer for that, wasn't he? Yeah, Tins was. Uh, he was. Uh, well, I mean, we had Tins and Leslie. I think Leslie Vinacolo come in back mm. in Gloucester days, and 
we had some big old brutes. But I think what we had as a back line as well, we had some um, we had some boys with a bit of flair with like people like James, Daniel, Anthony, Allen, Ollie Morgan. Mm. Um, they kind of sprinkled it in that as well. So we had a decent balance. But I mean, if you look to the Leicester team when we played against them, you know, when they had Rambini, um, Tuolangi, mm. Dan Hittis, uh, Jordan <laughs> Murphy was at Good was at ten. I mean, the big guy. So it was, it was a big, big old. Uh, I mean, it was a bit of a contrast to those type of players. But I think now it's it's getting a little bit more. Uh, every team pretty much runs a very similar shape and attack as well. Um, yeah. So I think uh, you you kind of have to have those those players in the, in the same positions, kind of the same weight, and if that's the way you want to play. Um, so yeah, centres again a little bit more smaller and a little bit more agile, but I think a lot a lot faster and they're becoming more like tens really, mm. um, a bigger ten um, ball playing and I can carry it at the same time. So yeah, the game's definitely evolving, and um, I think if you if you're if you stagnate as a team for too long, uh, I mean look at Leicester. I think um, obviously what five to five to six years ago they were they were one of the top teams in Europe yeah. and and now if, if if this year I think if uh, if Saracens didn't have if had the original band they'd be in the relegation zone. So it's um as I said, if you stagnate or uh, uh, you kind of rest on your laurels a little bit, um, you, you're going to be found wanting very quickly. Yeah, what was that like being at Leicester? Was that did that feel in some ways the pinnacle of your career because of the sort of um, the kudos around the club and the history? I mean, we we lost them in the in the final the year before mm. um, when when I signed so North, at Northampton, and, and to be honest, they're a big rivals. So it was, um, I mean, it was. Uh, I don't think it was a very popular decision with the people <laughs> in Northampton me moving over to Leicester. But it was it was something I wanted to win. I wanted to win some trophies, and I've been I've been in some finals, and I think I only won like a European Challenge Cup club rugby wise um, to to, to uh, win a trophy. So I thought Leicester would be the best place to do that, but. I mean, I didn't have too long there. I only had six months. We we kind of had a a bit. I, I signed when Matt O'Connor was yeah. there, um, and then he that, that summer I signed. He left to Leinster, mm. and I think we had a bit of a clash of ideas um, with the, with the rest of the, the coaching staff there. So I mean, as as you say, it's, uh, so Richard Cockrell had left by then, had he? Is that no? He he was there. Yeah. And he left the year after I left. Oh, okay. Um, so I think, but they did really well together. I think Cockers and Matt it was a good balance. And when I went to meet them, it's, it sounded really positive. And and Matt kind of had the same type of ideas that I would like to play the game. And and I think when uh, when Matt left to take the big job at Leinster, it was it was a bit more difficult for me because that's kind of the guy I, I wanted mm. to sign under and play. Um, but I think it was quite a pressurised time for Leicester. It seemed like a big transition. A lot of the older players were kind of moving on and, and retiring, maybe a little bit, and then. And I think we they lost their identity a little bit. They were always a big forward pack with uh, with with uh, with backs who who can who can beat you one on one, and and that kind of kind of drifted off a little bit back then. And, and as you see, they haven't really caught back up again. So it's a it's a difficult time for Leicester at the moment. Yeah, it certainly is. It's, it's momentum, isn't it? It's, fa- it's fascinating sport. I guess when you were at the club, you'd have felt that because I'm a Manchester United fan actually. And um, yeah. and it's like once it goes, you like you spend a billion pounds and you can't get it back. And it's it's it's, it's fascinating, isn't it? And now Liverpool are riding that wave at the moment, and it's interesting to see if they can keep that going. But once you're winning, you must have found in your career it's easier to continue, isn't it? Sometimes, and it's hard to turn it around sometimes. Yeah, so it is such a, a win, winning is such a habit, and it's so and lo, so is losing as well. And you can see that. I mean, with the squad Leicester's got, if you look down at the squad, they've got there are some fantastic players in there. But as you see, um, as you said about Man United, I think uh, I mean they could spend so much money. You have got su- superstars sprinkled all over the field mm. um, on paper. 
but they just don't gel. And um, I'm not sure. I mean, if everyone knew the formula, it'd be uh, <laughs> someone would be a multi-millionaire, wouldn't they? But it's uh, it, it is a difficult balance. I think that's what you got. It's, it's quite interesting. You you brought that analogy up, and and maybe the way uh, Klopp has kind of built that side. I always refer it back to Exeter. I think Exeter most probably yeah the built the the team from such a basic foundations as you say. I remember when they, they first got promoted they, they brought a lot of lads in who were on the fringe premiership, um, not really making starting fifteens all the time. And with lads had, had something to prove and mm. I think they built from that obviously a a, a world class team and a world class club with a with a great great support base and um obviously it's down there by the coach was it's very well situated as well. So I think the the place is uh, excellent, most probably the blueprint in rugby to, to build yeah. um, a very successful, um, sustainable club. But, I mean, as you say now, with the, with COVID and no crowds, I think everyone's in trouble. Yeah, do, do you worry. I actually um, emailed Martin Sinquinton, the Gloucester chairman, uh, a few couple of yeah, weeks ago. And yeah. he said, obviously, you know, thankfully his family's healthy, but it is a very challenging time. He's also chairman of the... The Cheltenham Racecourse as well, which you know, I guess yeah. at least they, you know, people say it was controversial. That went ahead in March, but at least they had a payday. Are you concerned about yeah. sort of Gloucester Rugby Club and I suppose all, all your ex clubs? I'm concerned for rugby in general. I mean, I think RFU come out. Um, did they release a statement yesterday saying that if there's no crowds in for six months, there's going to be wholesale changes to the way they have to distribute the money. Um, and obviously, if that that. I think community rugby and grassroots will be the first thing that kind of gets hit. And, mm. um, I mean, if if that happens, you kind of stop that pathway coming through. I mean, for future generations, for the opportunities and and for clubs as well, and the standard of play. I mean, it doesn't sound doesn't sound good at all. But I mean, at the moment, everyone's just trying to protect um, protect the income and and whatever brings the money in. That's what uh, that's what they have to do to survive. So it is it is such a challenging time. And to be honest, with these crowds not coming in. I mean, for all sport in general, it's not just rugby. I think yeah, it's it's going to be brought on its knees after what four to six months. I think hopefully they they can address that and they can come with a system that uh, that's safe for everybody and I mean get some people in and and these clubs can survive because it's uh, as I said, such a challenging time. It's quite scary as well to be quite honest. Yeah, locally you live in Cheltenham. I, I was <laughs> exchanging messages as well with uh, John Finnegan, who's former Cheltenham Town player and. Played yeah. at Lincoln and, and Nottingham Forest before that, but he's been very much in the area. He's head of commercial now at Cheltenham, and he's been furloughed since the spring. Mm. He had his first day back this week in anticipation of uh, crowds coming back in October. But now that's yeah. been Kai Bosher. He thinks he'll be potentially furloughed again until the end of October, and, and who knows what, because they don't need that many th- people in. I think I've been talking to, to boxers, and I know you follow Really Really Rival as well. I think what's fascinating when you yeah. the psychology of it, and Anthony Yard has been in box. He's actually lost relatives to COVID. Um, yeah. over the period but when you look at sports and rugby probably falls into this category you put yourself on the line every game something like this virus seems relatively sort of uh, minimal you'd rather have the virus probably than a, than a big smack in the head in terms of your health your mm. health safety so it's it's a very difficult one for sports people to watch their livelihoods go away for for something that is affecting a particular demographic it's complex isn't it yeah it's, I mean it's hugely complex I mean that's that's the, that's the thing I mean you um <clears throat> And the balance that the government's got to get, and it's not something that I envy, because um, it's, it's a horrendous, it's a kind of a, it's a horrendous situation to be in. I mean, in, on one hand, you've got, but it's not just sport. I mean, it's every. I mean, the I know a lot of people in the hospitality sector as well. Who, yeah. Who literally will go under? Who've been established for a long time, and I think if no one's bringing in money for a year to a year and a half, I mean, any business is going to struggle. Um, so I think 
the the balance they've got and as you said yeah i mean you're kind of looking at something to say it's not really going to affect me um if if i went out and caught it or something mm. I, I, it, the, the numbers are saying but as you say you i mean you you got to protect the old the older people but where's the balance that's that's i mean whose lives there's going to be a lot of lives lost in lockdown obviously with suicide yeah 150 um, last week wasn't it or something like that it's scary I mean, yeah i mean i'm i miss cancer patient uh, appointments and and things like that. I mean, it's it's a brutal situation at the moment. So I mean, I mean, which life is more important? I mean, that, yeah. that's the, the that's the that's the decision some people have got to make in the government. And obviously, it's absolute absolute brutal decision to make. But I think, to be honest, the if we do keep crowds out and um, the hospitality sector, I think the damage longer term is going to be way more mm. horrendous than um than maybe the virus could that could do so I'm, i mean obviously i'm not a scientist <laughs> i'm not a scientist um so you kind you're of not <laughs> i thought you were <laughs> no, yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, yeah, sorry. i was gonna get uh, i was gonna get a scientific breakdown of it no but it's um it's also <laughs> like at what point as well like you know i think all of us psychologically feel a bit pushed around as well it's difficult to know how you you know what point you empower people with the information to make their decisions and whether they want to go and support Cheltenham Town or Gloucester Rugby and albeit do it, you know, not willy-nilly and, and full houses and, and kind of people partying and cuddling and, and, and high-fiving. But you just think yeah, there, might, yeah. there might be a way to do it relatively safely. And if, if the issue, I think, is congregating outside the ground, just time it and move people and get them in and out and stuff. Just Because I think people want to support their local clubs. That's a big thing, don't they? No, hugely. I don't think, um, it's, I think it's more frustrating for, for the clubs because they've been putting these processes in, in place. Um and obviously, he's most probably spent a lot of time and money trying to get these processes and guidelines from the government to be able to make it as safe as possible for people to come and watch the game and and get the and get the business back up and running. And then once you get to a point, and then it's, it, within a day they just stop that and said, "Listen, it's six months. How do you plan? Mm. How can you keep planning when they're moving the goalposts every couple of days? Yeah, and the information that's coming out is changing, and the numbers are saying, "Oh, this this many people have." got cases this many people have died then but they say oh but the, the numbers um the numbers of people that died could be misconstrued because you could have a cold and then get run over by a bus and they still put it down as yeah yeah the same government and it's like uh, how do you plan for anything yeah. at the moment Unc- uncertainties yeah a lot of my friends are struggling with uncertainty because you know they're not sure whether they go back to the office and then it, it, the office has changed around i think that is a difficulty isn't it it's interesting speaking to fighters actually like boxers and mma fighters they seem to be relatively more comfortable with the general concept of uncertainty because in their business you never know when they're going to have their next match you never know yeah, exactly, they never know it's yeah, going to fall exactly. through like i think really really, really yeah. rival said to me he had a, obviously there's two postponements he said he, until he's actually in the ring and the opponent's there he's never sure it's going to happen which yeah, is yeah uh, and it, it is crazy, isn't yeah. it? I mean, he got he got his fight cancelled twice, didn't yeah. he? Yeah. I mean, um, and they're big. I mean, that's they they were a career defining fight for him. I think it's for the British and Commonwealth title. Yeah. And then imagine getting you get. I think it was the night he the night the first time that he got cancelled on the night because the guy failed a medical or he had something in his urine. Yeah, or it was a report. Yeah. yeah so um, yeah. And then uh, I think he had to wait three or four months and it got cancelled again, but obviously because of the because of COVID. And then yeah, that's a that's a tough sport. But I think. Um, but as you say, they only look after themselves a little bit. They've got a team around them, and, mm. and obviously they have to get in their own. They're in their own little bubble anyway for six to eight weeks. So I don't think it's too, it's too different for boxers. But as you say, they they still need people coming in to get paid, yeah, um, proper money as well. So I mean, it's it's all based on supporters. And if we can't get them in in the next few months, I, I really worry what sport's going to look like. But people say, oh, it's only sport, but. 
the livelihoods on the back and of what sport provides yeah. is massive. I mean, you're talking from even the the players to the to the ticket people who work in the ticket office to the hospitality to the, to the fans, thousands uh, of to the fans. Yeah, yeah exactly. It's, it's 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 so such a knock on effect, and the mental health of a lot of people um, is sport is the only thing they have. Mm. You know, and they, they go and they live for a game on a Saturday or. They live to go and play five a side or whatever it might be, netball, whatever you, whatever your sport of choice is, mm. and and for exercise. But I, I mean, we get told all the time that we should uh, be exercising the, um, for our mental health and things like this. But everything the government's put in restrictions is everything that we told that we should do to to be able yeah. to have a strong immune system. Yeah, and I, sp- I mean, yeah, I'm trying to think about whether they could, like financially, whether they could pay for streams. But you can't do that because BT Sport has the rights, don't they, for the premiership. So I'm not sure whether you yeah. could then charge fans to watch at home on their laptop if they want to support the club. But it's it's tricky. And also there's a social element, isn't there, being a fan and playing team sports is that humans, we need interaction. As good as Zoom and, and this app we're on, Anchor and all this sort of stuff, they're good connected, yeah. but actually people need to be around people in real life. Oh, huge! I think the human. I mean, that's what I was talking about earlier with with the children. Yeah, I feel so sorry for them because they're asking to go here, asking to go visit, and they don't really understand, you know. And um, I think what we're doing. I mean, if this if this is going to go on for a long period of time, I really worry about the psychological aspect of children and and their social their social skills that they're picking up. They're not looking. I mean, when we go out, mostly mm. um, you go into shops and things, they're not looking at anyone's reaction because we have masks on. Yeah. Um, and then we come home and they go to school. They're not allowed to play with their, their friends as openly as they can. They don't understand the reason why. No. Really. Exactly. Yeah. That's, that's the thing. They don't really understand the reason why they get told because it's from authority. And then and they come home and then they're, you have to isolate, not allowed to leave your house. I mean, what a... Yeah. What a yeah, co- coughs and, coughs and colds sure. at the moment. This is seasonal as well, isn't it? It's going to cause a lot of logistical, lot of logistical oh, issues. Huge, yeah, huge. I mean, I mean, everything about it. I mean, I, we, in my my opinion is, I mean, we, whatever viruses come, you, the human race has had to live with it. Mm. I mean, you could go back to the Spanish flu, where it's killed what? Yeah, I don't know, well, yeah, I think there's equivalent sanctions then, but that was actually really millions of people and it was actually really detrimental detrimental to young people as well so there wasn't even a sense you could you could sort of you know figure out who was the most susceptible that was across the board deadly i think i mean it's just a but nothing got locked down i don't think really mm. um so i mean this is I, I mean to get the balance i mean you can say that we're going to lose lives of people here but i think if we locked down for so long and you actually have what we spoke about before about the mental health and cancer patients and other viruses because it's like people forget there's actually other diseases out there mm. and if you can't i mean I, my father's in hospital at the moment i can't go see him oh man um so it's it, i mean it's obviously there's people with a lot worse case um situation than me um as well so but i mean you you kind of just look at your own situation and you kind of you assess that and mm. it, it is a really really strange time i don't really understand everything that's going on with the numbers because you get a different picture picked up every day yeah we, we won't know the data until hindsight i think about sort of how how, how deadly the, the virus is necessarily and, and to whom and, and how and all those kind of things and it's you're right there's this sort of stress though it's, it's it's difficult we've actually vowed having a chat to my wife this morning about not speaking in front of our daughter i mean she's she she drains everything in even consciously not even subconsciously but yeah, we exactly, realize that yeah. 
she woke up in the middle of the night or early on in the evening last night um, and she was sat up in her bed pretending to wash her hands. And I thought, oh my God, she's like, I'm going to wash my hands, mummy. I'm nearly finished. And we said, no, so yeah, you don't need to wash your hands. You, because you're being told, you know, understandably at school, you've got to wash your hands all the time. You've got to be clean and, and, and yeah. all those things. And I think that's, you know, that will, will, will prey on her, her mind, I think, and that sort of uh, uncertainty whether you can go and play with certain kids and, and things like that. So it's... Um, so yeah, it's a very, uh, very tricky. And she's an only child, so it's it's tricky for her because then we're trying to you know keep her socialising. That's why school. Yeah, exactly. It's really good that the schools can stay open. I think because it's a formative stage of her her personality and everything. But I mean, I, I, I said, I mean, we, I mean, you. We, it seems like in the human history we've had to live with every virus. It's not you're not. I don't understand the end goal. That's the problem. I don't understand the end goal of what we try to do, eradicate it. Are we trying to eradicate cases? Is it mm. zero cases, zero deaths? I mean, I, I don't, because it just mutates. Yeah. Um, so We think we hope it becomes like flu, don't we, where we sort of, unfortunately, it will take a few lives each year, but we try and then kind of just live with it to a certain extent and get, get vaccinations, I suppose is what the theory will be. But I think it will be around for a while, indefinitely, won't it? I mean, it has to be. I, I think that's what they're saying. And, and this, this, this way of life isn't sustainable mm. whatsoever. I mean, the way, the way that we're going at the moment, it's not sustainable for, for future generations. It's not sustainable at the moment for, <clears throat> for any business, really. So it's, um, I think we, got, we, as a, <clears throat> we have to get back to responsibility, uh, normality, sorry, um, sooner rather than later but as i said what what a horrendous job that the the government yeah yeah and, you don't question that you so, don't question their intent it's just very complex and i think maybe it will change and evolve and they'll maybe change their stance as well as the, as this sort of situation develops and we try and balance it all with the economy including sport as well it's interesting just thinking about rugby and you mentioned the um this sort of the, this this way it's maybe becoming slightly more nuanced in terms of attacking the line and different types of physiques do you think that in a sense rugby should go back to being more flair based and entertainment because to, to attract more fans. Do you think that is that a commercial factor as well? Um, well, I think it kind of evolves, um, it kind of evolves naturally into that. I think, um, once you get you get one team, usually are very good at something, they kind of get on top, and then another team will be able to work out how to do, how to attack that system, and then it kind of evolves, yeah, in, in that type of. In that type of way, I mean, um, I think the way Exeter are playing at the moment, they got some big old boys, but their movement and mm. their movement in the whole team is, is, uh, is if you watch them, um, it's not just one aspect of the field that people are work, the work off the ball is absolutely fantastic, and that's making defence making decisions constantly. Um, I think that's the way it's going to go. I think it's going to go a little bit more like NFL, like special teams a little bit. I mean, it's a, really a more continu- a more continuous game, but I think the way we kind of um, break down the game, um, especially in training, where you, you've got your back three, they kind of go off and work on a certain skill aspect. Because it's so different, a fullback to a, a fullback to a prop is literally like playing a completely <laughs> different sport. Yeah, you know? yeah. I mean, in the same game, it's playing, it's playing a completely different sport. So, I mean, and the way they have to train is differently. Different, um, so, you don't, you don't do many drills with the whole, whole squad out there and together? You do you do some team team stuff obviously because you've got to do some team shape and, and things like that. But I mean, in terms of individual skill um, and their core skills, uh, a fullback would would uh, their program would look a hell of a lot different to a prop, say. Mm. Um, but I mean, the game is evolving, and you can see that forwards have to be able to get their hands on the ball now and, and make decisions at the line. Yeah. Um, at the defensive line so I think that's evolving as much as we can as well so I think uh, props aren't just going to be the guy who just 
kind of bends over and pushes anymore. Um, <laughs> if they, they're going to have to be able to to play the game a little bit, and I think uh, that's why you're most probably looking at more streamlined players, and, and everyone's coming a bit smaller, but maybe more powerful, more explosive, and um, and uh, more anaerobic fitness than it was because a lot of times we used to come into pre-season it was a it was an aerobic base it was always like uh you'd, you'd do a long distance run did you all right yeah you'd do a bleep test at the start and, and now they're they're just kind of gone those tests really you know? and it's, yeah it's all it's all repeated speed um shorter distance higher intense because that's what the game is really you know you kind of you work i think the ball's in play on average something like 45 seconds to maybe a minute and a half um mm. You're gonna have to work, but you're you're never maximally working for all those minutes. You know, the, mm. when you're involved in the game, obviously it's a max effort, counter tackling or whatever, or a max sprint. But then you have to be able to recover very quickly to be able to do the max effort again. So recovery from the sprint's the key, then, is it? Not not building up lactic acid, I guess. No, I mean again for a fullback to a proper proper ACL, he has to build up lots of lactic acid because he's hitting walls, he's scrummaging, and so that's what I'm saying about the different aspects of. Of of uh, of training for for different positions, so it's um I think it's going to get definitely get more individual based. I mean, when we were few fair few years ago, say what eight to ten years ago, we were all doing the same training, same mm. type of um same type of weights program, same type of fitness program. But now it's all getting individualized. When more money came in, obviously it was a, a lot easier to do because you get more coaches, yeah, um, and more qualified people. But I think. Uh, yeah, obviously, with with what what's happening with COVID, what what rugby's going to look like after is um, obviously up for debate as well. But um, that's the way it was going, really. Yeah, well, that's that's good. I suppose another aspect is the because you joked to me actually said remind me about this conversation because I've probably got too many concussions in my career. Another aspect, <laughs> another aspect of it being more subtly attack, I suppose, is that you do protect people's heads a bit more. What have you made of that sort of? I guess the science and revelations around um, concussion and CTE and stuff during your career. Um, I mean, if you want me to be quite honest about it, I think um, I think training's worse. Really, um, it's, not, it's not regulated in training. I mean, every, everything gets put down to safety on uh, in, on match days. But where you kind of get the most bangs and the most uh, maybe the most niggles, and you come out and then you go into a game and then play not hundred percent is in, is in training, and that's not really regulated. You know, I mean, mm. when you get two two lads say in the same position. Who, up and coming, one's a more established player, and the other one's an academy kid, or, or a, a guy that's, that's kind of come in 21, 22, wants to make a name for himself. I mean, when you're doing rucking, it's not you're not really thinking about the rules. If you're going to get you're going to get penalised from a in, in a game, you just kind of want to get that guy off the ball. Yeah. Um, and I've I've seen some collisions in training where I just think, oh, that's horrendous. You'll get seven weeks, or you'll get eight weeks if you did that in a game. Wow. Wow. Um, but I mean that happens, yeah, and then it kind of just gets brushed. So, 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 so it's full contact training, is it usually daily? Not daily, no. I mean, you usually have a, a, a Tuesday is usually contact day, um, and then on a Wednesday you, you might do a few hits and some individual stuff around the back rows. Might do some uh, some work on the floor or whatever. But um, yeah, in the contact sessions and scrummaging as well. I mean, if I was a prop and I did, uh, I played a game on a Saturday. Mm. Um, and then it's, it's literally like they've been in a car crash. And yeah. Scrum, I mean, the pressure is ridiculous. And then you have to come in. So you've got a Friday game and they have you in again on Monday and you're, you're doing, you're doing hitting the scrum machine or you're doing live scrums again. I mean, that is, you're not, your spine you're not fully screen. recovered, are you from that? No, of course not. I mean, your spine, that's why they look like question marks. Their backs <laughs> when, they, when they finish playing. Um, so it's, it's, it, it is, yeah, I think in training is most probably where 
I would think that the safety aspect comes into obviously the game as well because that's what the public see and that's what um, you kind of people would judge the game on how safe it is is it is in the game um, but yeah it is a physical game I don't think you should take that out of it either mm. I mean a lot of lads come out after I think I saw um, Dylan Hartley and Haskell's uh, podcast where they talk about the injuries and um, how they feel after and um, uh, their backs and things being 35, 34 uh, 36 yeah um, but how does your how does your body feel now? Yeah, I'm aching all all the time. I mean, you're you're kind of you're in pain a lot. Um, and that, that's not that's not from training now. That's from the residual effects of rugby. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's just that's just normal. I mean, for the last three years of your career, you wake up, you got a sore back. It takes you so. I mean, Haskell said something where he he went out to training and he led on his back, and he knows he's got a two hour um, contact session, condition session, whatever with England, and he's led on his back, and he said, I feel effing awful you know <laughs> yeah. it's like it's so true I've been, at, I've been out there so many times where you're jogging around the field for a warm up and you think oh my god I feel horrendous wow. like, knees are hurting ankles are hurting yeah you, you sort of question whether because we always assume that sort of you said at the top like exercise is, is good for us but in terms of sport and certain sports you wonder if it is I remember seeing Lawrence Delalio like literally dragging his leg down the road in Q, oh, Q in yeah. West London I thought this is still in his playing days. I was like, geez, how's yeah, he, he I mean, can't even barely I bet he's walk. Now. I bet he's better now because you're getting on the Monday and they, they have to wheel you out to get training mm. on the Tuesday. Um, yeah, but I mean, it, it is one of them that you're like, oh, but it is a physical game. This is the thing. This is a physical game. Um, and it's, it's a game that everyone loves. And I, I wouldn't want to take that aspect away mm. you know because that's why people come to watch that's why people come to watch it do, do you need a bigger pitch people say bigger pitches don't they that you maybe now that it's professional you're also fit that maybe there needs more space on the pitch because you've got 30 guys on pretty much it's the same size as the football pitch pretty much isn't it they have 22 yeah yeah um yeah it could be a good chat I, I actually when i first heard it i thought it was a horrendous decision <laughs> but i actually i actually see the the logic in a few things where they say no subs until it's an injury like back in the day because then because a lot of players now, they can't actually play 80 minutes. They know they're coming off on the 55, 60 minute mark. Yeah, so they hit hard in that period. So you'd have to change your, the pace at which you hit. Exactly. So, you, I mean, you can't carry 145 kilos around the, the, um, the pitch for 80 minutes. So if, if you knew you had to have a front five that were going to have to play 80 minutes, I'm sure you'll see that, that, that weight come down to 110, 115. And scrums wouldn't be as... Is dominating, but I mean, again, the flip side of it: if lads are playing eighty minutes every week, that's brutal as well. Mm. So it's uh, it is a bit of a, a fine balance. And again, it's, it's not a not a thing I envy the 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 board making these decisions or or trying to make it safer because it's, it's it is uh, it is a difficult balance. Yeah, and sometimes you have that free will aspect, don't you, with boxing, with fighting, with rugby, with American football, where now we know the science that it can be damaging. You have to give people the opportunity to choose, I suppose, once they have the information. I mean, I think that that seems to have gone out of society in general. I mean, it's like everyone's trying to make a decision for you, what's best for you. Mm. And it's, well, let's just, I, I want to play rugby. I enjoy rugby. I know the risks involved. Um, if you don't want to do it, fine, it's your choice. It's, it's free world. You can do what you want. Um, but I think that's exactly the same, same with boxing. Uh, it's their choice. Mm. Um, like, say, Mike Tyson and Roy Jones Jr. coming out of the retirement. Yeah. Surely, medically, that cannot be good for a fifty-five-year-old. To get hit in the head, no. Go no. into, go get hit in the head. Um, but again, it's his free choice. I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to see him come back out again. But I'm definitely going to watch it. Yes, yeah, that's the reality. Um, that's, yeah. the, that's the reality of it, all, isn't it? So it's, 
it is, uh, it's, it's, as I said, it's free choice. I mean, you, I don't want to take the aspect out. Because if you took the, well, for want of a better word, the danger aspect out of rugby, the spectators wouldn't watch yeah. it. And all, all, it's yeah. And it's complicated. Yeah, life's complicated as well because you, you do realise that it's finite. Whatever you do, that's the issue. And sometimes I think that's part of the, the era we're in at the moment. Everyone's terrified. But actually, we're coming to terms with our own mortality, which... I try and think about because it can be used as a positive motivating factor, can't it? It's like you've got a certain amount of time. We're not sure how long it's going to be, but you want to make the most of it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's, that's the thing. I mean, everyone seems to be scared to do anything. Like everyone's scared to get offended. Everyone's scared to hear something they don't like. Everyone's scared. Yeah. <laughs> it just seems like it's just such a strange world at the moment. Yeah. It's like, uh, I remember in the, when I was growing up, it was like each to their own. Um, I might not agree with with what you do or what agree with the sport, the choices you take, but it's, you accept it. And I think that now everyone likes to be on their high horse, their moral high horse, and everyone's just waiting for you to do something that they can chop you at the knees for. Yeah. And some, some people, some uh, people like to fly close to the wind throughout their life. They like to take risks. It's, it's interesting. Exactly, yeah. yeah, exactly. So it's like you chop you at the knees and, and be able to take that moral high ground and, that seems like society in general now. I think that's just Twitter, actually. Twitter, might just be you know, I've taken, I've taken Twitter <laughs> off my phone. I was speaking to Tris Dixon last week, um, who's a box, boxing yeah, journalist. Yeah, yeah. And then I, yeah, I, know, yeah. and I watched um, the, uh, the... People can listen back to Tris. He's taken Twitter off his phone because he's more productive without it and just because he was getting involved in conversations throughout the day and checking it. And then he, I watched on Netflix Social Media Dilemma, which is about kind of the addictiveness of it and how it kind of distracts your brain and stuff and actually it's interesting because you do sort of get out of that world because there's a lot of judgment flying around which I don't think is good for us either people being judged or the people doing the judging I think makes them feel bad ultimately because it's coming from a place of, of insecurity quite often uh, obviously I mean um, it's usually people sat in their mother's, uh, <laughs> mother's basement usually that's what I always imagine it anyway so if, um, I mean if, if, if you're trying to do if you're trying to do stuff uh, productive with your life I don't think people's got that much time arguing on Twitter if I'm quite honest yeah um, I mean put your efforts in elsewhere and I'm sure the world would be a lot, a lot better place than trying to get the moral high ground from your mum's basement yeah we need it we needed a hashtag stay safe but make the most of your life or something like that like kind of a, yeah. a, kind of like not not stay at home all the time and all that sort of stuff but it's interesting because for people listening to this podcast who may be in the UK or maybe abroad I know a few people listen in the states to give them a sense of of what rugby means in this part of the world, it's it's quite unique, isn't it? I know you're down to Exeter, but you've got this strip of the country, the sort of West Country, from, I suppose, Exeter, Bristol, up to Worcester, where it's almost like the number one sport, which is peculiar, isn't it, in the context of the, the whole of the UK, which is world-renowned for being football crazy. Yeah, massively. I think, um, I mean, I actually played football growing up and I was in the, I was in the mi- minority a little bit. Um, all my friends played rugby and they all went down to the rugby club. Wow. And I, and I was always a, always a, always a fan of football. Sorry, say again. What position did you play? Oh, I was at, I was at front glory sport. Glory <laughs> man, <wasn't> I? <laughs> I thought you'd be in midfield. I thought you'd be midfield. I thought that would be a transition to fly half. Uh, no, I was um, I always like being up front. It was a high line and kick it over the top. I was pretty quick when I was younger, so that that was that was a tactic. Nice. Uh, but then my brother started playing, and then I went down the rugby club a little bit, and then obviously it, it continued from there. But yeah, the county is just. I think there's something like 15 to 16 local rugby clubs in such a small area. And it's obviously the rivals, uh, the rivalry between the clubs is pretty big. They're all around the same local league. So it is always, um, and everyone kind of knew each other from different rugby clubs. It's more like a, a rugby community, if anything, you know, it wasn't really, uh, as you say, maybe in London where everything's a little bit more spread out and yeah. maybe you might not know the, the families might not know each other as well. Uh, uh, in Gloucester is, 
that usually the parents went to the same school or knew of someone who went to the yeah, same yeah. school and, and things like that. So it's, it's a lot more close and a bit more uh, community based, and that's what I mean. That's what uh, the, the southwest is pretty much built on, um, on the foundation of rugby as well, and, and that family. That family aspect down the rugby club on a Sunday morning. Yeah, it's interesting because rugby union, football, and, and rugby league it all came from, I suppose, American football in a sense. They came from the same sort of origins of where people play in these different games at schools, and then people had different versions of it. And now we've got these geographical divides in north, yeah. north and south with union versus league. And I know they've tried to bring league into the south, and they've got sale and, and teams in the north, but it's, it's difficult to thrive there, isn't it? As much as it is for the, the rugby league club. So it's, it's fascinating that kind of the local areas, the affinity for certain sports. Yeah, for, uh, it is quite strange to think for such a small country as well. Um, in terms, maybe not population, but in terms of land mass, uh, it, it's, it's very different. Like, I mean, we used to talk about accents; is, is very similar as well. I mean, we live in Gloucester, yeah. and if we went forty minutes to Birmingham, <laughs> it's a completely and utterly different accent. Or you know? Bristol, and, yeah, and, the other way. Yeah, or Bristol, yeah, exactly. So it's um, it, it is very similar to that where you kind of. Communities have, have taken their own sport, or I mean, in Cornwall they've got their own language as well, haven't they? Yeah, so it's it's, um, it's definitely a, a, a strange demographic, but it's uh, yeah, it's something that's quite unique maybe to this country, and especially with uh, the, the the main areas of sport, Southwest London's football, and then you go up north and it's rugby league. It's it's uh, is maybe quite a strange demographic but uh, yeah I mean I've only ever known rugby yeah. to be uh, number one sport in Southwest. Yeah yeah it's fascinating I mean, for you it must have been amazing you said you came from football did that football background help you in the kicking at Fly Half? Oh, 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 well I'm not that good at kicker was I? <laughs> <laughs> Alright fair enough <laughs> you must have kicked sometimes though. Right? Sh- yeah, I should have changed the shape of the ball it might have been a bit better yeah. but... It's hard to get a rugby ball is hard, hard to kick for no one that's ever done it it's, it's not the same it's hard to get power on it a bit like an American football It is it's got a, such a uh, smaller sweet spot. But yeah, I think it definitely helped my hand-eye and maybe dropping the ball onto my foot and things like that. Obviously, you wouldn't, I wouldn't be able to tell too much. But uh, yeah, it definitely helped. I played a lot of different sports when I was younger. I, summer, I, I, I was really into boxing. I'd always go, always try and get down to the boxing. Were you? Team. Were you yeah, that in Gloucester, was it? was that? Yeah, it was around like the King's Old Mayor I used to go. Um, and then obviously we'd uh, I do quite a bit. Of my brother as well. We we always used to stay up for the Mike Tyson fights, the yeah. Prince Nazim fights with my with my dad. It was like a, it's quite a vivid childhood memory of mine. Being really excited for. I remember when Nazim went to fight a Barrera yeah. over in America, um, and then he lost. He got absolutely dominated, didn't he? So I was gutted. Was that, that. was that was that two thousand and one? Was it? Was that? I think it was around that area, wasn't it? I'm not sure. Yeah, yeah. Been, I would have been. Yeah, well, it couldn't have been over. Yeah, and then you had Lewis Tyson, Lennox Lewis Tyson, sort of the next year after Lennox that. Yeah, Lewis Tyson, and I remember Tyson Bruno when it was in England. Yeah, was, um, being very young. So yeah, is uh, I remember all that's like my childhood memories. So is I I think that toughened toughened you up for rugby, that didn't it? Though being able to take contact, I suppose, was part of that. Yeah, definitely. You, you kind of, I mean, as he's saying about personal choice, there's lads who just thrive on that person that um that contact that uh that competition in the, and be able to get that aggression out a little bit you know on obviously to to the rules but um i think that's what we kind of come from a lot of play a lot of lads that i grew up with we kind of thrived on that um on that uh, contact in sport yeah um so and that's what i was saying about personal choice it might not be for you you want to go off and do what play tennis or whatever you want to do and bowling or <laughs> and uh, <laughs> you see, I did play tennis this summer. Actually, you got me. 
<laughs> Did you? Yeah, yeah. I, I had access yeah, to it. I haven't been able to play five-a-side football for ages because it's indoor I usually play, so we've, we've not been oh, able to do yeah, that. Yeah. So You can't do anything. I know. You've even taken tennis away, didn't you? Yeah, yeah. And golf. I've never got into golf, though. It's one of those things that I sort of think I should do it, probably for my psychology. No, to be, be, to be, be more patient. I think it'd be good to test me, actually, mentally. would be good. No, it's, it's a good weekend away, Ed, as well. You get <laughs> how are you, get, how are you getting that with a three- and an eight-year-old? You're, uh, you, you're doing well there. <laughs> You have to try and push them off to the grandparents. Oh, so, I see. Yeah, if you take your wife with you, it's um, easier. Yeah. There's no way I can give. Uh, there's no way I'll be able to give my my boy away to my 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 mum for a night. He's a nightmare. So yeah, imprisoned. I quite like seeing them the next day. I, the, the grandparents after one sleepover, they look like they're just basically aged about fifteen years. And like, <laughs> yeah. Destroyed yeah, funeral arrangements. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, definitely. It's um, but it must have been such a point of pride for you to represent Gloucester for the local community, and then that decision to leave Gloucester must have been pretty big when it came. Yeah, it, it, I mean that was all, all you kind of dreamed about. I remember when I actually got into rugby, then you go down to the shed and you watch the Kings, watch the the the, the guys play, and you feel the atmosphere. And obviously, being from Gloucester, that's that was the hub. It was Gloucester Rugby Club was the hub of, of yeah. the city, and um, not like. Obviously, the people live to go watch the Gloucester on the weekend. So, be able to run out and actually get the Gloucester cheer running in front of the shed when you're an 18-year-old lad, literally playing in the Daily Mail Daily Mail Cup, which is like a national schools mm. competition, six months before, and then you run out in front of the shed. It was, a, it was a big, big step up, but it was obviously a, a, always a massive dream for a local lad to do that. And it was, a, it was five years. It was, it was great, but as I said, I... I um, I kind of need to get out the goldfish bowl a little bit to be able to mature yeah. as as a as a player and as a person a little bit. Um, obviously, you're in like a goldfish bowl. I knew everyone. I was very comfortable. I could still see my school friends. I could still see my family. Um, and obviously, but with comes with that is if you're not doing too well, there's a lot of people that can give you stick that you know. Yeah, and you kind of yeah. get the bounce back of the news. So it was, um, and then moving to London, I went to London. Yeah. So I've gone from living in Gloucester for 23 years and then moving to London was a big, big eye opener for me. And uh, Cost the living spikes there as well, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, of course, yeah. <laughs> You're not going down for your 1p, uh, 1p sweets anymore, you know. Yeah, um, yeah. It was, uh, it was a massive eye opener. In fact, I think that those two years in London really kind of matured me as a person and as a player a little bit and, um, I kind of had to look after myself instead of giving my washing to my mum. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's always a, always a developmental thing. And you moved around quite a lot, didn't you? you at that time, in fr- you went to uh, Worcester as well for a period up the road, up the M5, and then um, yeah. and, and La Rochelle as well in France. What was that experience like? Did you take the whole family over to France? Yeah, we all went over. Um, we were there for about two, two and a half years. Um, we, we wanted to stay there, but uh, my boy actually got diagnosed with autism out there. So it was. Oh no! It was, um, but it was, they they were they were awesome over there. But it was mainly they're so far behind with the treatments and the things that you can do. Mm. Um, so it was, it was more of a, a family decision to come home. But we we loved our time over there. We were living in a beautiful spot in La Rochelle. 
Um, That's from, from our French GCSE, from our French books at school. Did you have those scores? Yeah, exactly. books. Yeah, yeah. 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 I remember when they signed them. My, my wife said it. My wife and <laughs> said it about it. Yeah. Um, I didn't. I didn't read that textbook too much. My French wasn't too, well, too great. Well, but unless you're bilingual, that's the best thing about being a sports person. That I always respect is people that you know, men and women that travel abroad because it's an opportunity, isn't it? I know language is important still in communication, but not as important as having an office job or, or something like that. No, exactly. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, we were, I mean, we, I, that's what I wanted to do when we went over, we could really try to submerge ourselves in the culture, learn the language. Um, I mean, to get the biggest thing that took, got our heads around was you couldn't get any food out from between, uh, the only time you'd be able to eat out for lunch was between 12 and 2. <laughs> and all the shop, all the shops would be shut there as well. Wow. So if, if you can't get to a supermarket between, 12 and uh, before 12 you're not getting any you're not getting so old, old school happened. old school kind of way yeah like yeah. school sunday nothing's open it's very traditional there and they're not going to change but i mean it's the community aspect everything over there we we love nice the nice weather, weather yeah obviously and then you can go down to the beach we lived on the on the west coast so obviously you got bordeaux below Ooh. and then you could go to Biarritz, bay bay on Biarritz, and then you can go into spain so it was a uh, yeah, it was a, it was a beautiful time to to live, in. and it's, we made some great memories over there as well. And uh, it's um it's definitely a time I look back with with fond memories. Do you how do you affect on England and and playing for the Saxons, which I guess for people who don't know is sort of like the B team um for for the England rugby team. We we disappointed you didn't make that breakthrough. Or was it just about personnel? And I guess you had some stiff stiff opposition as well. Well, yeah, well, I mean, when you go into uh, a selection meeting and they say, oh, we're going to go with Johnny Wilkinson this week, <laughs> you, kind of, you kind of agree with him and say, yeah, I would too. Yeah, a little bit. yeah. So yeah. Really, I mean, yeah, I played in a bit of a difficult area. I mean, Charlie Hodgson, when I was playing my best rugby, I think Charlie and Johnny were the the, fir- the first, uh, the, the number 10s in the squad. And then you had Floody, Toby Floody, who was yeah. like a 10 12. Yeah. Um, so obviously they were all world class. Leicester player at the time, was he? Yeah, totally, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so it was. Um, I mean, they were world class players. Uh, so I couldn't gripe too much. But I, I had about a, a period of two, three years where I went from Gloucester to play at London Irish. Where I was playing some really good rugby, and, and I thought I should have got a cap then. Mm. Um, but I mean, to be, I'm not going to lie. I didn't really like the environment when I went there. I didn't. It was it was too military kind of themed for my liking. They would tell you when to sleep, when to eat. Mm. When to do this? When to and I mean, um, I mean, it's obviously a dream to play for England, and uh, but when I went there, it was nothing that I imagined. It wasn't fun. Yeah, it wasn't. Like you were there to represent your country. It wasn't like you should be proud of it. It was more. It's just drill you as hard as you can, and you will be. T- you will do this when you're told. And it was like oh, it can be counterproductive that sometimes, can't it? If you feel bad, it's it maybe make you less sort of able to express yourself and enjoy yourself. Exactly. I mean, there's a guy called um, Stefan Armitage. Um, I'm not sure. If yeah. You know, he, he, he played for Toulon. He was at London Irish with me and he world-class player. Then he went to Toulon, won three European Cups. Yeah. Um, obviously, I think he was European player of the year, two years running, three years running. Um, and he couldn't get on to England, <laughs> you know, and he, he just could, every time he went there, he wouldn't pick him and things like that. I'm not saying that I was anywhere near Stefan's standard, but it was... Um, it was just where sometimes you go to an environment you just cannot get on. Yeah. You know, it's just like your face doesn't fit or like your opinions that you have, it just fall on deaf ears. And, and when I went there, it was a massive Leicester click. It was still from the the World Cup era. Oh, three, yeah. A lot of players, yeah, a lot, a lot of Leicester players still. Martin played. Johnson would have been coaching, wouldn't he, around that time as well? Yeah, exactly. John Wells was the forward coach. And it was such a. Oh, but what's the word? It's a really difficult way to explain the environment, but it was honestly, it was yeah, the most, 
unenjoyable environment I could have been in. And then um, with me, it was all about experience. If I enjoyed the place and um, enjoyed my rugby, I always played my, played my best rugby. Yeah. And in the end, I just didn't want to be there. Mm. Um, and that's a horrendous thing to say uh, for for a kid who, who obviously always dreamed about growing up playing for his local club and then going on to play internationally was was uh, huge. It would have been huge for me. But I got as I got there, and it was a month in, I went to a couple of camps. I just thought, this is horrendous. I don't want to <laughs> yeah. see it. Well, you have to enjoy it. it and be creative, I suppose, in your position as well at Fly Half. You know, you have to be in the in the zone and, and feel it, I guess. But we've got to wrap up in a second, Ryan, because this app actually, it kind of cancels it after an hour or so. It, cause it yeah, cuts yeah, off. No, but I just wanted to say, um, your Wikipedia page says that you, you play Warhammer, which is like the, uh, <laughs> which is like the, uh, the, the sort of soldiers and stuff on a table. Do you do, is that true? <laughs> what is the... One of the Leslie boys changed that when I turned up last year. It's like you're like some international level competitor or something, a Warhammer. <laughs> well, uh, Dylan Evans, one of the props that Leslie changed that. I think Steph Evans is the winner. And um, I've had so many people message me about that, asking if, if I wanted to come to a tournament. I, think, I don't even know what Warhammer is. Yeah, it's like. I think it's like you have a table and you have all the sort of landscape and the little soldiers and you try and pick. Well, I didn't know what it was until I looked it up, but I was like, wow, I don't know. That's, yeah, that's exactly. interesting. Yeah, exactly. yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, I might could have be, to learn, Could be a so destiny now, be... couldn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's pushed me into it. But yeah, no, I haven't got a clue what that is. Sorry, I haven't got a clue. Good man. Good man. Well, hopefully um, we'll catch up soon. Grab a coffee because uh, while we still can, as long as, as long as we don't bring our families, we don't, don't need... Extend the group of six, <laughs> yeah, but I really appreciate your time, Ryan. Thank you. Thanks for downloading the app and no getting worries, in touch. Ed. Thanks for having I'll speak to you soon. Cheers. Stay Thanks, in touch. Ryan. Cheers, Ryan. Bye for now. Bye. Good guy, Ryan Lamb. Warhammer. I've got the definition here. It's a tabletop miniature war game with a medieval fantasy theme that simulates battles between armies from different factions. So there we have it, Ryan Lamb. Not necessarily a Warhammer. Uh, internationally renowned star, as his Wikipedia page suggests, but certainly all the stuff about rugby is true. Gloucester legend and uh, Leicester, Worcester, La Rochelle, London Irish, all the other clubs as well. Distinguished career, only 34 years of age, and wishing the best of luck. Uh, coaching for Hartbury College, which is locals here again. He lives uh, in the same town as me in Cheltenham. We'll try and catch up with him. Thank you for listening to that. If you do enjoy it, head to uh, iTunes and rate it or wherever else. It'd be fantastic wherever you listen to your podcasts. would appreciate it. I know it kind of spread out now through the, uh, the home hub of Anchor, the podcast app, which is now you know kind of connected to all these other places where you may be listening to it now. Um, and uh, get in touch if you want to give me any feedback as well on social media, Ed Draper 81 on Twitter, Ed underscore Draper 81 on Instagram. Although I'm not checking my phone as regularly and I have taken Twitter off my phone just to be more productive following that uh, program, which I recommend, heartily recommend actually, due to this sort of seductive and addictive aspects of uh, social media you can go to um, Netflix and, and watch social media dilemma and for boxing fans watch the documentary on pariah the lives and deaths of Sonny Liston also a huge cultural program my wife watched it with me I recommend that as well thank you to the sponsors of the podcast Bang Olufsen of Cheltenham and Serene AV who are specialists in some of the finest home entertainment brands providing solutions based around high-quality customer service and installations. And cytoplan.co.uk, looking to optimize your immunity at the moment uh, with the sort of, I guess, the specter of COVID in the background, but also the regular seasonal stuff, coughs and colds and flus that may be around, uh, particularly if you've got kids going back to school. cytoplan.co.uk, and you can use the discount code 
Draper10, my last name, D-R-A-P-E-R-1-0. Thank you for listening to the podcast. By the way, the Sunny Liston documentaries on Sky Documentaries, as is the George, they've got a great George Foreman one on there as well, former heavyweight world champion, twice heavyweight world champion Foreman, came back and won it again at 45 in uh, the mid-90s. So it's a great, great program. And Sunny Liston's is sad, but illuminating both on, on his life and then culturally about a, a black man growing up at a time when civil rights movement was occurring and he was sort of um, not necessarily embraced by by anyone particularly apart from his wife and was embroiled with the the mob in Vegas and uh, other parts of the, the United States as well so it's a great documentary but thank you for listening to the podcast do appreciate it have a great weekend and goodbye for now